to episode two of the complete Satoshi Kon. I am Matt Gasteyer, and my co-host is Travis Trudell, and he's here. How are you, Travis? I'm doing well. How's it going, Matt? I'm doing pretty well. We, you know, averted a potential democratic disaster, um, and uh, yes. so we can, uh, you know, worry about more uh, normal things like the, you know, wreckage that the Global society warming. is anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way the planet like is the, self-destructive. But it's like the usual normal things and you don't have to yeah. listen to his voice ever again. So that's nice. <laughs> uh, it's heaven. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's a lot better. Uh, you know, the pie, the pies tasted sweeter this holiday. Yeah. Uh, knowing it's true. Yeah. Even happening. if, even if you, we couldn't do it with the whole fam. This episode is going to be about uh, Millennium Actress, Cohn's second feature film. This is um, a pretty major movie in my life. It's one of my favorite animated movies uh, ever. And uh, this kind of rewatch, I watched it uh, two times for this podcast after having seen it in the movie theater earlier in, I guess that was, God, that must have been 2019 then. Because it was it was in the spring, so it couldn't have been this spring, because <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to movie theaters, and uh, so I got to see it in a movie theater, which was really great. But the the new Blu-ray that uh, that was put out this year looks gorgeous, and so that was a really nice to be able to revisit it on disc and to, to to know that I would have it in pristine condition for the rest of my life. Yes, much like uh, any Cone movie. Uh... Time does not exist, really. Uh, it is all around us and constantly yes. moving. So 2019 seems like it was right. yesterday, That's but it's true. also millions and, of And the Millennium ago. Actress disc is my key. You know, it's the, it's, it, <laughs> it's the, uh, the answer to everything. What, what do you... Uh, so, I mean, there's not really, like, a ton to, uh, to catch up on here, just because I think Comb, you know, was working on some other things uh, in between, but... Ultimately, this was a situation where a producer came to him and said, Hey, liked your last movie. Let's make another movie like it. And Cohn said, uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and he, yeah. uh, and he uh, what was the, what was the word? Now it went a right st- out of my head. Stere- stereoscope. Stereoscope. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he wasn't saying, was. uh, you know, I want to make another kind of uh, sexually charged thriller uh, or like a, you know, a, a dark movie about uh stalkers or you know what anything like or even about fame necessarily he just said he wanted to make another stereoscope um and so this was the movie that they came up with out of that and um it's it's interesting i think the first thing just to talk about is is the fact that cohen has continually said that the the Japanese film history component of the movie is not important to him. That it was something that he kind of uh, used uh, to hang his his plot on. And that it was a lot of, you know, partially the producer and the co-writers that were um, egging him along uh, through that component of the movie. Um, but also just kind of that he was, you know, using it to talk about these larger themes that he wanted to talk about. Uh, and, and I think... You know, just because by nature of being in Japan and making the movie primarily for a Japanese audience, uh, he knew kind of focusing on specifically Japanese film would be the way to go. 
we can talk more about that component of it as we get into it. And it's crazy is because in it 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 premiered in Japan after it had won awards and accolades in other parts of the world. So it was a movie he made thinking about the Japanese audience and it wasn't until after it went yeah. out to the world and came back that it was able to be appreciated by Japanese audiences, which I think is uh, is pretty amusing. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, and that, that was kind of true of Perfect Blue as well, right? Like it was, you know, the video release that ended up you know, getting some kind of international attention, partially because one of the few anime filmmakers who was well known at the time outside of Japan lent his prestige to the project. And so people kind of paid attention to it more than they otherwise would have for such a low profile release from an unknown director. And that that kind of, you know, slingshotted back to the filmmaking it's actually it's not an uncommon thing um, for foreign filmmakers to kind of use their their weight from well from projects that were well received outside of their country in order to become kind of more successful within their country and sometimes they don't even really get the recognition that foreigners might think that they deserve from within their their country i mean one good recent example of that from japan is is koreeda who the first few movies that he made didn't do especially well in Japan, but got, you know, huge reception from uh, international audiences. Uh, and he kind of turned to more uh, crowd-pleasing stuff in the middle of his career in order to get more attention in his home country. I think Cohn kind of worked the same way in his own um, career where I think he was edging towards kind of more Japanese-centric material when he passed, but it was it was really international audiences that received his stuff the strongest. Yeah, and I think originally he had kind of on the back burner the idea of doing uh, Paprika as his next move project, but that kind of got shelved a bit as he as he worked on he didn't have the method yet to tell that story, which we'll get to eventually in, in a later podcast episode. But, uh, yeah, the fact that, uh, that the producers responded to the stuff that we responded to in the last episode, uh, his storytelling technique and the way that he was doubling and tripling and going back in time and, and forward in time and you were, you know, totally unhinged in time in most parts of the film. It was that, that, excited this producer who wanted to kind of do that again and you know choosing this actress as she tells her story and we go throughout the time and of filmmaking history really lends itself as a really fantastic uh, structure to hang this narrative on I, I really do feel like this and I don't mean to slate the film by saying this because you know as I've said I, I love this movie and I, I actually slightly prefer it to Perfect Blue but it does feel a lot like a g-rated retread of perfect blue like i think that this oh, yeah. movie very much is doing a lot of the same things that that movie did yeah, it's a it's a, it's a more palatable and more hopeful yeah. uh idea of the world as opposed to uh, a very negative take on what was going on in the uh, filmmaking industry at the time yeah in perfect blue well and it also it, it mirrors that in its techniques you know that's using uh the same 
kind of uh, animation and cinematic techniques to tell the story and, and to sort of create this feeling of reality and fiction blurring together, but it's doing it in a much more palatable way. And, mm. and you know, and, and in a way that I think is a lot more sort of relatable and grounding as opposed to disorienting yeah. and disturbing in the way yeah, that exactly. it is in Perfect Blue. It's enjoyable instead of paranoia and uh, distrust yeah. and everything. This way, it's like it's almost like rose-colored in terms of let's look at the history and the past, but in a way that is is enjoyable. This melding of both her uh, fictional world and her uh, reality, and uh, as we dig through her history, little uh, little archaeologists digging through her past to find out, like piece, you know, piecing together her true story, which is uh, right. Which it's not like she's lying and trying to hide it. You know, she even asks at one point, is this okay? Like, is the way I'm telling this okay? Yeah. It's, I, I like, I, I'm blending and that's that's what I'm going to do. And we're, you know, and we're like, yes, we're totally happy with this. Please yeah. do more of it. I mean, I, I yeah, there are these moments where it breaks through the facade of this, these characters entering her story. And we see, you know, Genya in the in the samurai getup, like pretending to ride a horse sitting in the chair across from her in her house in modern day. And you really, you know, kind of realize, okay, well, what we're seeing isn't what they're actually experiencing in the movie. It's a representation of the storytelling that she is creating. Yet at the same time, there are things that could only happen with them being inserted into the story so it really becomes this thing where, you know, in the, in kind of that classic Lynchian way of like, is this reality? Is it fiction? It doesn't matter. Like that it's actually like impossible for you to be able to figure that out within the context of this movie. And that's really the intention of it. It's not supposed yeah. to be something that you say, okay, well, this moment really did happen. This moment was in a movie like the you know there's there's very key moments that that we'll go through where it seems like it's part of her real story but then it becomes part of a movie and you really have to sit back and say okay well i'm just going to go with this because there's no possible way that you can separate out how this could have been in a movie that he saw later on because this had to be from her real story exactly <laughs> and i think i think in this in this film uh we are the cameraman like that's our that's our role. We're we're constantly amazed at what's going on. How is this happening? Uh, but also going with it, yeah. and just saying, okay, let's 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 accept all this because they do. You know, she sits down to tell her story, and we think that we're watching her. You know, memories of her past life, but our characters, our, our director and our cameraman characters, are within that also participating, but not you know almost kind of like a Greek chorus at some points. And then, you know, we get to that train station and there we go. She's, you know, this is a movie. I cried. I cried that's every bit, time. That's at the this big movie. moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. for sure. Where, it, I mean, there's no way that you can separate out, you know, did this really happen where she was chasing this guy down on the train platform? And yet he's saying, like, this is part of a real movie that I'm recognizing and that is a beloved part of this actress's career. Yeah. I mean, I, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're very excited to talk about this movie because there's a lot to talk about. Um, I mean, I don't think we need to set it up very much because uh, I think we've established in this podcast that 
don't listen to this if you haven't seen the movies we're talking yeah. about. And, uh, and we don't rehash. <laughs> we don't rehash what's actually going on. Yeah, we go right into themes right away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think like no, uh, but I, I think there is something to be said for the structure of this movie and working through it uh, a little bit. I mean, I think first of all, just the opening, the fact that the opening is almost identical to the opening of Perfect Blue in the sense of we we're, we're in a sci-fi world. Uh, you know, was sort of generic expected setting for an anime. And all of a sudden that reality is broken and we are within the world of this star, you know, this entertainer's performance. And and we are forced to reconcile kind of the emotion that we're seeing with the artificiality of her existence, essentially. You know, we immediately get the, this rewind through all of these scenes that we're going to experience later on in the movie. And even that we are going to go back to and have another montage of later in the movie, you know, it's almost li- literally like we're fast forwarding through the rest of the movie we're about to watch as we're rewinding. <laughs> yeah, through, the, the, through the, her the life. beginning of the movie is the end of the movie at the same time. Yeah. And. And then yeah. that that's mirrored too in the in the earthquake that opens at the beginning. You know that where mm-hmm. there's an earthquake or the you know the rumble of the spaceship turns into the earthquake that's happening in the contemporary time period, and yet the in the end of the movie the spaceship is rumbled as they're shooting the the actual movie is rumbled by an actual earthquake that happened in the past. So. Again, he just, it's folds upon folds of um, reality and fiction that he's playing with, even within the structure of the movie itself. And then he also does this fantastic thing, which gives you visual echoes throughout the entirety of the movie, where within the credit sequence, we go through all of the high points of the film, which then (laughs) when we see them for the first time in the structure of the film, we automatically have this feeling of we remember this because we've already seen it. So it's almost like it's almost like in the way that he's structured the film, he's also encouraging us to have the same nostalgic or feelings of memories because we've seen this. And so now we're piecing it together from just the opening credit sequence, which gives us a sense that this has already happened which also gives us a sense of memory and that feeling right. of memory in which he's trying to evoke from the audience through the story as well. So it's 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 absolutely amazing how how he goes about uh, structuring this film. There's even another layer to that because as they're rewinding and we're seeing these flashes of her life, they are traveling in a van to go to her house to meet her with her. And so we are... And as they're traveling, not only are they in the van, but we're seeing boats, we're seeing trains, we're seeing cars, we're seeing all of this transportation, and that is uh, reflected later on throughout the movie as she's frequently seen running, you know, on trains, on spaceships, on boats, uh, you know, just transportation is sort of a theme throughout the film and matches this journey that we're experiencing of her life um, at the the beginning of the the movie. The first note I have in my notes is movement. 
like this is all about movement and about momentum, about moving forward, um, you know, either through time, through the frame, through the past, through the future. And it's a constant sense of movement. This character is never, never sitting still. And when she is, when she is still, our uh, lead actress, uh, Chioko, uh, when she is still, it's usually because she has fallen and that or she's been knocked down. And then she picks herself back up again and continues her her momentum. It's a great it's a great theme throughout the piece. And yet, when we get to her house, we get these very stagnant and carefully composed, almost Ozu like pillow shots of her mm-hmm. house and the stillness of her environment that she has surrounded herself with for. The second half of her life so again we're sort of matching the the uh the experience of going to see her of her getting to this point in her life heavy movement with the stillness and reflection of the second half of her life which we don't understand like it's almost like we don't understand the reason why there's stillness now until we realize that she's missing that drive to continue moving forward until our director returns it to her. Yeah. And so, you know, that it's like you lost the keys to the car, so we're stopping. Mm. Oh, the we keys. can't do anything. Yeah. And then once the key is returned, I know, right? <laughs> once the key is returned, we can start that motor again and keep moving. Like that's, you know, it's, it's such a fantastic, you know, and, you know, invoking that Ozu style of, uh, of, of shots. I know in one of the, uh, you know, if we're talking about our house at the beginning, uh, one of the pieces uh, in, I, I can't remember if it was in a documentary or the producer talking about it in one of the behind the scenes things, uh, I guess uh, one of the animators wanted to showcase this idea of tree rings. So there's lots of wood grain texture in our house mm. to because tree rings uh, signify uh, the passing of time. Um, you see marked time throughout the entire in the, throughout the entire film and then you see marked time throughout what she's surrounded herself with so her house itself is very much up a beaten path through a tunnel through a bamboo forest to this like house that's set in a very specific period setting and everything is made out of wood and everything is wood grain so she's surrounding herself with the passage of time but it's all been stopped because everything is you know the trees are no longer growing so these things have stopped so i found that to be you know that's one of those little details where you kind of don't think about it until you until you're told like this is a very deliberate decision and i think uh cohen says at one point he goes oh he's very insistent that everything had wood grain <laughs> Mm. So I said, sure, let's do it. <laughs> well, you know, and the the other thing is the lotus that she loves. Those those mm. grow in um, essentially still waters, you know, slow moving uh, rivers or deltas. They're not a, a an immediate gratification flower, um, and they and they they do they are somewhat um, stagnant, you know, or stillness. They reflected in 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 Japanese art in that fashion. So yeah, again, it's it's sort of the contrast between her uh, her life as it began and 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 sort of as as she grew older, what she became. And the other thing about Ozu, obviously, is that um, he's I think most famously associated with uh, Setsuko Hara, who's uh, probably the biggest star in Japanese film history. 
Um, she recently died. Um, she lived a very long life, uh, but she retired soon after Ozu died, even though she worked with many directors um, and had a, a, a very admirable career, even ignoring the towering masterpieces that she made with Ozu. Uh, he, she only made, uh, I think five or six movies with him, but she retired soon after he died and, and went to a small town, actually the town where, uh, she lives in late spring and read books and didn't talk to anybody like reporters or anything and lived her life, uh, in peace. And so obviously there's a, um, a quite clear connection there between her and Chiyoko their, their lives aren't entirely similar in other ways. And I think there were, there are other actresses that she was based on as well. But I think, you know, I think the, the immediate association for anybody who has even a loose familiarization with, um, Japanese film history is going to, uh, be Setsuko Hara. Yeah. Besides, besides that idea of the life, there's also the, you know, there's shots from films that, you know, Setsuko Hara is in that are recreated within this, uh, within this movie as well. And I think the other actress that he, uh, modeled a lot of the films after is, uh, Hideko Takamine. Mm-hmm. She worked a lot with Naruse. She did an Ozu film as well, but uh, yeah, and Hara Hara worked with with both of those directors as well. Yeah, I mean, I I think getting too deep into both the Japanese film history of the movie and the uh, Setsuko Hara of it all can be a bit of a red herring. You know, I I buy into yeah. the idea that he was ultimately talking about larger interests of his and not necessarily specifically commenting on any of those components that being said like i i do think this movie is very much about kind of loving movies and a a deep relationship with movies even if it's not specific to any particular actress or movies uh, or even movies you know or or japanese film history i think just the nature of the way that the filmmakers are inserted into the memories, the way that the, you know, film folds in on itself and becomes a film within a film. These are all things that I think comment on the experience of watching movies and living other people's lives through that experience. Yeah. And I think the other aspect is the fact that our, our director Genya, who's doing the documentary about uh, Chiyoko, he's also representing the kind of super fan mm-hmm. in the positive, the positive aspects. Unlike uh, Perfect Blue, where we see the negative aspects of super fandom, here we have the positive aspects about her because of the fans being celebrated, being remembered, and all those things helping energize her and to help her remember all of her stuff. And so having that be the idea of this being a celebration of film, it, you know, having it also be besides it being like a history of film and the filming of film and the making and the creation of film and the watching of film. It's also about the, the fandom of film, people who were really into these things that, you know, watch it over and over and over again and keep getting more and more out of it. Uh, kind of like what we do with this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, I think also 
Kyoji, the the cameraman, is the contrast of that. I mean, he's obviously like a guy who, yeah, you know, he's a cameraman, so he's obviously yeah. interested in movies, and yet he dismisses Chiyoko at the beginning as you know just you know an old lady basically like who needs who needs this history or you know she's she's not important anymore i think at one point he says something like you know she's over i don't remember the the age i think it was a 40 yeah she's over 40 <laughs> yeah. so she's not important. so she doesn't matter anymore yeah and i i think he in a lot of ways stands in for movie watchers and movie fandom just as much as Genya does it's just a different form of it you know this oh yeah for sure this sense of the new the fresh the cool there's no value in looking back because we want to see what's new yep so i think that yep. that they definitely you know represent that component of it he's also there for i mean both of them are to a certain degree there for comedic relief they don't have deep backstories even genya like who's who's woven into the actual experience in her past life typically serves as as sort of a bumbling fool trying to uh you know win her attention both both in contemporary era and in the past yeah he's he's got the uh, he's got the tendencies of kind of like an older an older comedic style of like the big bumbling oaf character where uh, uh, Kyoji has the more modern sensibilities of cutting remarks and, you know, reactions as opposed to this, you know, their design itself, their stature design, you know, uh, Genja is, uh, is short and stout yep. and uh, Kyoji's tall and thin, you know, you have your Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello type of uh, automatic, uh, contrast makes them humorous to begin with so i mean i think they show you know they show up and and have this conversation i think the first scene where well so she starts talking and i think we get a sense immediately of the fact that these flashbacks are going to be different it starts with photos and then the photos kind of come to life she begins to sort of run through them and move through them it's kind of just sort of almost like stationary cell animation where you're getting the different levels and planes um, and things kind of moving between them. And then we really realize that things are different when we flash back to this first moment where she has this meeting with her mother with a director who is trying to recruit her for uh, a movie that will be filmed in Manchuria right before World War Two, and and Genya and Kyoji are sitting there watching in the actual scene and there's a really significantly different change in the dialogue here between the dubbed version and the subtitled version in the subtitled version she starts by talking to Genya and Kyoji she says like this is the director you know she's she's talking to them it's it's pretty clear that that she's kind of even though she's young chiyoko she's having a, a conversation with her interviewers in the dubbed version that's not the case she is just in the scene speaking to her mom and to the director 
did you note that? Is that something that, I mean, I'm right, right? That, that, oh, yes. I mean, that's a pretty significantly different kind of way to throw you into this concept of them sitting there. Cause you, you, you really, you, sh they, Cone opens the scene on her. So we're not aware that they're there. So when she talks to them, it's this weird feeling of like, oh, is she going to be kind of talking to these disembodied voices um, as if she's kind of, you know, speaking like her younger self. And then he shows a scene with all five of them in the frame and you realize that this is going to be a, a different kind of movie than you had expected it to be. Yeah, I think I wonder if uh, I wonder if the American directors or the American team who put this together kind of went, uh, you know, this is confusing enough already. If we add this other layer of she's recognizing that these characters exist within her flashback of her memory, uh, we're adding another layer of what? So maybe we just get rid of that because it's really one of the only times in which she acknowledges their presence until yeah. he inserts right. the, until he inserts himself in her memories as characters within the films that she's talking about otherwise than that when they're in their anachronistic uh you know uh, clothing before he's melding into her her fantasies and her memories this is the only time she addresses them really everything else it's it's the two of them interacting in those worlds but not not really uh interacting with them in a meaningful way you know they're running or dodging right. or chasing or getting out of the way of something uh nothing they do affects those memories or those times until genya you know fully commits to this i this concept and starts dressing the part and then that is when he's able to interact fully inside these uh inside these dreams i think if you watch the dub version for the first time you would have the expectation that they were essentially you know holograms like sam from quantum leap or something that had been inserted into <laughs> into the yeah. past and you know people could walk through them essentially they were just there as witnesses in almost you know just a visual re representation of the story that she was telling them whereas in the original version it's clear from the beginning that there's a deeper interaction between the memories and these observers yeah yeah no i agree i think i think having her address them right away helps us uh place how they're interacting as opposed to the uh, dubbed version which kind of lets you kind of figure it out as you go which it, it, it's you know it is kind of on there does there there it starts off with a level of of a bit of confusion but then it like as soon as you buy into this concept you're rewarded tenfold because it's so joyous to see these characters interact with her in her memories and be that little bit of a, you know, I said earlier, Greek chorus that, uh, you know, says the stuff or points out where this lies in terms of history or her history. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Like I was, I was trying to think of, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything else that is even relatively close to that method of storytelling with the exception of 
uh, a Muppet Christmas Carol, <laughs> where Gonzo and Rizzo are constantly walking through scenes and talking. Yeah. And, you know, like it's the only time I've, and it's not even that's done like much like the play is. They're the narrators, but this one they're not narrators. They're not, you know, they're not fully commenting. They're not telling her story. They're just there yeah. to bear witness to what's going on. And they're still interacting. You know, it's not like every scene that changes, they change costumes. Kyoji never is not right. holding his video camera. It's not like his camera changes depending on where they go. Right, and they're uh, talking. I mean, he's talking about, like, what are we filming right now? So it's not even yeah. like they're, you know, it's not even like they've been inserted in and they know that it's the past. Like, they're inserted in as documentary filmmakers to capture these moments uh yeah in, in you know in real time and we never see the footage kyoji shooting in those moments but he's always moving yeah. always filming at one point know, he says car. boss you're in the seat you're in the shot yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's 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 a fantastic storytelling device i i was i was elated yeah when, uh when when seeing this for the first time it's just this is such an original and and, and interesting uh, storytelling technique that I haven't seen and I was trying to think of how it could possibly work in a live action because that's you know as usual that's one of the things that's always levied against these types of films is why didn't you just make this live action and as we talked about in Perfect Blue you know it can't be as clean and perfect and I don't think that you could have these characters in that sense working through these period pieces without you know in a live action film without it feeling hokey or yeah. gimmicky or just out of place where here in this uh anime it's just it is something that you instantly accept and it's it it just helps you go along for the ride. He also does really subtle things to distinguish between them and what's happening that would be very gimmicky in live action. Like the the moment the the whole sequence where she first meets the artist who is this guy who, you know, gives her the key that, that Genya hands her at the beginning of the movie. It's really the MacGuffin of the film. Most of those scenes are in, essentially in black and white with some red sort of accented it. But the, yeah, the, the, the two of them are in color. Um, yes. And it's, it's, but it's, it, it, it sounds stark when I say it that way, like, a, you know, like all of a sudden they've been inserted into a Schindler's List scene, but it's, very subtle kind of gradations of black and white that they've been rendered in to the point where, you know, you could just kind of pass it off as them being kind of in the snowstorm. And the two of them, the two of them, they're the color choices that they made when they came up with these characters. Uh, it lends to this monochromatic idea. Yeah. And then I think Cohn was saying that, you know, the idea was it would be black and white, but the strength of her memories colors the memories and that's what that's how she can remember things so it's almost like there's an aura of color around her like she's mm. not just you know white like you know black and white she she has a tint right. to her fit her skin tone and then her you know that scarf that you know the the artist wears and there's these little pieces of memory that are touch points throughout the rest of the film that stay colored and it's not like yeah it's not like the red jacket in schindler's list where it's so obviously right. the only thing colored it's very subtle and it almost it wasn't i don't think until the second time 
where I realized that oh everything else is yeah, in, I think like so everything too. around yeah. her is in black and white like it, it's it's so subtle I didn't even recognize it right away. It's also like Japan obviously like any country started out their filmmaking in in black and white. I mean, you know, everybody had had tinting and and hand-drawn color, but ultimately mm. the vast majority of movies from when she first started working were in black and white and Japan in particular was late to color. They didn't have a feature in fully in color until the 50s and even then most theaters weren't capable of showing color films so it's again sort of mirroring the history of japanese filmmaking and japanese history as you're uh, going through her career and the the film's running time as we go into the train station there's this moment that we that we mentioned earlier in the podcast where she is running to try to catch this guy leaving on the train to Manchuria and she trips and falls and Genya starts crying and he says that this is he saw this scene you know 50 60 times whatever however many times he says in theaters uh, and he cried every time and it's the first real moment where were made to question whether any of this is actually her story of her life and how much of it is scenes from movies that we uh, don't, you know, aren't aware of uh, from this fictional universe that she's kind of retelling or that he's retelling, you know, as, as part of her story that she's telling. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think it's a. Uh, it's Kyoji who's the. Who's like, wait a second, what? This is a movie, and he's like, yes, no, this is the. Yeah, I think he says like, film. when, this when, is... when did we, when, when did we get in a movie or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and so it's it's that that's the moment where you realize this is going to be much different than you know we anticipated. That's where we start adding his his uh, cone layers and levels of of thought and thinking and time and and the melding of this idea of fantasy or memory and fantasy which is going to be a concern and a uh, a, almost a trope for him for the rest of his career and this is also you know it's in this segment here that we we establish like some of the the repetitive things that'll happen throughout the course of the movie you know when she meets the artist for the first time it's uh she's been knocked she gets knocked down by him like he bumps into her and knocks her down Mm -hmm. and this happens three times throughout the movie this is the first of the three as time progresses uh the person who knocks her down changes to the point where the person who knocks her down has no meaning uh which we can talk about as we get later in the film but uh uh, we have that. We have her falling down, uh, running to the point where she can no longer run and just f- collapses. So, you know, exhausting herself completely in her effort to chase and, and to move. And it's not the other thing is it's not the traditional like, you know, left to right, right to left. Uh, you know, it's he has her moving different ways. You know, we're, we start right to left and then we move left to right and, you know, from uh, background to foreground and you know uh, uh, cornered and it's always a sense of of momentum like going someplace there's always a great there's always correct screen direction but it isn't always the same same chase and they did or even the same style of, of animation 
Exactly. And they did a lot of studying about that. The fact that, you know, we didn't, he didn't want the animators to, to just re- rely on how they've always drawn someone running or a woman running. And so they did like tons of footage of, of, you know, this, a, a woman running and, you know, wanting to make sure she, you know, how she's running a certain way that will also talk a lot about uh, Chiyoko's uh, class and her, her, her upbringing and how she would run. Mm. You know, she's not, she's not like a peasant girl who, who will run without care or without thought as to how people are perceiving her. But there's also this sense of she was taught a certain way to run, which we see in her early memories of her going to school. You see her competing in a, in a foot race. So she has run and she has, you know, participated in those types of things. But she's always, you know, always running, always, always moving that way. And that's, you know, that's the first time that we, we get those we get those moments. And and throughout that, we have that same kind of the style that we've worked in through Perfect Blue. We have our match cuts and our action yep. cuts as she moves throughout this uh throughout these scenes and throughout this time. And then we also are introduced to the man with a scar on his face um, in this first section, which is he plays a significant role in her memories and throughout the memories of the films she's made throughout, you know, the rest of the story as well. That's a, an important character to kind of be paying attention to. There's a, a match cut with the, although I, it's it's funny to call it a match cut because it's animated. It's it's very smooth because it's, it's the oh, same yes. hands of the pinky as they do the pinky grab to her talking with her friends about this guy that she has a crush on, which is another moment that is uh, reflected later on in the film. When she's on the train, we hear some schoolgirls behind her having essentially the same conversation that she had. Again, kind of like the, the cyclical nature of um, what she's remembering. And I thought that was that was something I didn't notice until... Uh, the most recent time that I watched the movie, I thought that was a really nice touch. That is, and then she has like a third remembrance of it later on, you know, towards the end as a kind of like her memories are unspooling a yeah. bit more as we're getting right. closer to the end. So, yeah, a lot of stuff in this movie comes in threes. Lots of lots of of, of visual echoes of threes, uh, you know, happening three different times throughout the film, and each time changing or referencing the past one or tweaking it a little bit as well i know that one of the one of the biggest things that i noticed is that in the opening of the film when she's entering the space shuttle and the uh guy says uh you won't be able to come back or something Mm -hmm. like that and she just says thank you yeah like that her her response to his statement seems so out of place but then at the end uh when we're doing the scene again and Genya right. and Kyoji are the ones that are there. And at this point, Kyoji's invested in the story. And so it's the only time where he appears in a spaceman outfit. Uh, because, you know, he hasn't appeared in any of the period clothing mm. from any of the other films. But this one, he's now in a spacesuit because he's he's emotionally invested in this story now. Which I thought is a fantastic arc for him. But uh, he says... Uh, Genya says a line to her, something uh, that flattered her or said something of like, you know, you were the best or something like that. But she doesn't answer thank you. But she did Mm -hmm. in the past. 
she answers she answers thank you to that line that you know so it's 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 just fantastic how those things line up in terms of you know repeating the cycle again you know and as those memories start to meld she's responding to something that doesn't happen and then she's not responding to the thing that does but you know if you put those scenes together and cut them recut them then she's answering exactly to what genya is saying which is uh there's a level of brilliance into the and uh, to the order in which Cohn is is working on and telling this story from that is it's exceptional. I think uh, I think you were talking to me off podcast at one point about like I just wish all animation people had to study these movies so they know what is more more than possible to get away from some of the standard uh, filmmaking tropes. You know, we, we you can excel and expand this language that he has done, and not enough people are are playing with that language. Yeah, there's a great one actually right after the train scene where we see uh, old Chioko and she fades essentially into young Chioko and the camera rotates around and all of a sudden it's young Chioko getting up from the platform. She's back, you know, as she fought after mm-hmm. she fell on the train platform. But as she stands up, she's no longer on the train platform. She's in front of the boat that she's going to take to Manchuria. It's, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's an incredible transition and it's something that could only be accomplished with animation. And yeah, it's frustrating to see stuff like that um, from 20 years ago and not feel like I can point to things that are direct descendants of it, you know, cause it's just technique like that. It, it's, it's so great. And the, and, you know, to your point about the sort of the, the, the blending of, of real and fake and the, these scenes that could be cut together and spliced in different ways, like the way that, that a conversation will end in one moment, but it continues in the next uh, cut, but it's almost, but it's in a different place. And then all of a sudden you're in a, you're in the movie that's being made, but then all of a sudden you be, you don't necessarily know that you're in the movie because they're still talking about the same thing that they've been talking about previously. And, and, you know, about her trying to find this man or, about wanting to marry uh, him later on in the film, waiting until he comes back so that she can marry him. And then all of a sudden she, she says, wait a second, I can't find my key. Cut. And it's just like, all of a sudden we realize this is a movie that's being filmed. It's no, we're no longer seeing her story. We're seeing a piece of her film history. It's these like very gradual shifts that, can be accomplished with these match cuts that aren't match cuts because it's you're you're just focused on this character and they don't need to you know cgi splice her together and move sets with so the camera isn't cutting because they're you know there are no sets they're just drawing what they're drawing and the the smoothness of that is something that couldn't possibly be accomplished with live action and yet these these stories are stories that are about real things and real people nothing that is depicted in this movie couldn't happen in real life in fact probably the most kind of 
supernatural component of the film comes directly from the, a live action movie, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, um, with the you know the the witch uh, at the spinning oh, wheel, yeah. um, and yet it 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 can only be accomplished that re- that depiction of reality can only be accomplished through animation. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, we're you know if it wasn't animation, if it was live action, changes in that would be jarring. Uh, you know, it would take you out of what's happening as opposed to enveloping you like uh, anim- like this animation does. It it keeps you inside the story as opposed to kicking you right. out. There's another moment. It's it comes it comes later in the film, but she's uh, having a conversation with her mother. She's gone back home and she's talking to her mom about, you know, she doesn't want to marry this guy. She doesn't want to do this thing. And then all of a sudden, like we, you know, we we cut to her saying this line. We cut back to the mom. We cut yeah. back to her. And when we cut back, it's, it's now Aiko, the uh, the actress yeah. that is, you right. know, is taking the place of her mom. And it's, yeah, it, with you don't you don't see it, and it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't take you out because it's a natural progression of like yes, that makes sense because at this point in the film, um, we have. We have come to accept that that is what is going on. You know, this is the language of the film, and so it's something that is peppered in and easy to, easy to go with at that point. Yeah, but at the same time, Cone isn't afraid to let you know that you're watching an animated movie. You know, there are stylistic mm-hmm. flourishes. There are these transitions that are, you know, you sh- you shoot the front of a front cover of a magazine. And then the magazine comes to life. You know, the, he's, he's oh, constantly yeah. reminding you that like not, you know, I'm trying to put you into a realistic experience here, but this is an animated movie. And, you know, I'm going to show you what I can do with that animation. <laughs> oh yeah. And like, like traveling through like a wood, a wood cut, uh, a wood, wood block, uh, you know, print yeah. as you go through history and, and, you know, just, and there are it, references it, to famous paintings in the in the film as well, uh, you know, to sort of key you into those moments. Yeah, there's some hokus, hokusai yeah. in that in that period of the film, and you know, and the fact that she's chasing an artist, you know, that's the other yeah. thing. You know, she's she's an artist working as an actress chasing a painter, who you know has a gift for you know how he perceives the world and displaying it for others, but. The fact that she's never seen his art or doesn't know like what it actually is, and you know that we never have a clear idea of who he is, or you know, it, it keeps the mystery of of us wanting to experience with her this character and propels the story forward, which you know is the concept of wanting to be a part of this idea of art. And having it be something that is exciting and mysterious and fun and romantic and all these all these ideas that come along with uh, the art world for people who are on the outside or even people that are on the inside who want to explore deeper and further into it. It's a you know it's a it's a lovely touch. And that's the key, right? I mean, that's what the key yeah. represents ultimately. I mean, the only thing that we really uh, could you know def- sort of guess with any sort of evidence to back it up what the key opens is just simply his case of uh, tools for painting yeah 
and 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 it's such a it's such a beautiful moment because he has just talked about how he likes the imperfection of not a full moon, which goes into the whole uh, conversation about uh, the aesthetics of memory that Japanese uh, people have, like in in their culture. And so there's this idea of uh, sabi, which is the pleasure in the old and faded, lovely and perfect. Uh, and you, it's not to lament these things having eroded or faded away or not being perfect, but it's to love their imperfections. And so by he's talking to her about the moon and how he, oh, it's not the full moon. It's the one right before the mm-hmm. full moon. So it's not the best. It's it's right before. And I love, it's almost like that anticipation, which goes into, you know, her right. constantly on the chase. Yeah, it's, it's the this chase anticipation. that I really loved. yeah. And and then like that key, she sees what it like. It's her, it's her, it's her view that goes from the key right. to her toolbox back to him, and she knows what the answer is, but she doesn't want to solve it yet, and which builds into her, you know, whole her whole entire motivation throughout the whole film is that she loves the chase, the idea of finding this thing, and so she just says something like, "Oh well." I don't want to guess right away because I don't want to get it wrong. Can I have some time to think about it? Like, what does this key represent? And it's almost like right away we're pointed to, like, the key probably just opens this thing. So there's really no mystery to it. But so why has it become an object of fascination throughout the rest of the film? It's a... It's it's a nice touch, it, you know. Just have I keep saying that it's a nice touch because <laughs> I don't know how to I don't know how to phrase it better than, you know, it's a very clever, you can't do a chef thoughtful, kiss on a podcast. I know you can't. Yeah. It's, well, it's it's a very clever and thoughtful <laughs> way of going about a lot of these ideas. You know, uh, in some films it would be maybe a little bit more ham handed or yeah. or a MacGuffin of of that nature of it doesn't matter, but this key does matter. In a sense, it is the it is it is a symbol of her motivation and her drive. Which, you know, when she loses it for a while, she she stops, yeah. and that's when you know she she gets married to someone who she doesn't really love, but she fell for some ideas because she doesn't have her key anymore, and so she loses sight of what truly inspires her and creates this passion with her, which is you know. Which then also, when she's in her older age and she doesn't have that key anymore, she stops acting. She goes into hiding. So it's the moments in which she doesn't have this item is which she becomes stagnant and idle. Well, when and when she first kind of rejects him be, from getting married, the thing that stops her is literally the key. It clinks against her glass, and she kind of wakes up. And that's the other thing about the MacGuffin here is that it's it's almost literally a driver. Like physically, I shouldn't say literally, but physically a driver of plot. That mm-hmm. the the when the key appears, it it's at crucial moments in her story, but it also seems to sort of like propel the settings forward. Like that when we see the key, we're going into a different era, and it's so it's used both in this kind of metaphoric, deeper uh, spiritual meaning of you know what's the most important thing in life uh, on, on sort of the high-minded level, but also I think more importantly what you've been talking about in terms of the chase and this feeling of, of urgency in her movement through through life, opening doors, uh, essentially. Yeah. But then it's also like physically there 
and it's 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 a constant presence in the film both in terms of of her looking for it and the the story itself being moved forward by it and you know the idea of her opening lots of doors but never needing a key to do that like it's always a sense of she's in control of kind of what she's going towards and there's a few times where the doors are closed and she cannot enter and those are those those right. are the moments where she doesn't know what's going on anyway. Like, you know, the moment where she finally does uh, see the artist again and the police have taken him into custody and are taking him behind this door and she cannot enter or go in there because both it could physically be that the door is locked and she cannot enter. It can be a symbol for the fact that, you know, this is a memory that she does not possess because something has happened outside of her scope of... Uh, being able to comprehend it or to physically uh, witness it and then it's also it's also what i find to be later which i've i i think it's 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 a part of repression because if this character is dead which we find out has happened behind that locked door our artist character has been killed if she admits that that has happened then the chase no longer you know there is no chase anymore and so it's almost like that moment where she sees the lock and sees the box that it it probably goes to and she denies that connection it's almost like that locked door to the truth is another connection which she doesn't bother to make because then the game the fun is no longer there in her life yeah that jail jail sequence i think ends the first kind of climactic sequence of the movie which starts with her the throne of blood homage sort of morphing into mm-hmm. a hidden kingdom homage as she becomes the kick-ass princess um and <laughs> and then uh genya shows up to be like a zatoichi type yeah, figure zatoichi Yochi yeah type yeah guy. um I mean, I think he even looks like Zatoichi a little bit when, when he, you know, when he shows up in that, that final moment with the swords uh, to take out all the, all the different guys. Oh yeah. The flashing, his flashing. Sword yeah, exactly. Making, making work, work of it. Yeah. Yeah. But then I, you know, that kind of transitions into this virtuoso sequence of the horse becoming a carriage, becoming a rickshaw, becoming a bicycle, and we're really getting this sense of her moving through history it's a beautiful sequence completely and then you have that moment from late spring of her just smiling and riding her bike in that kind of mid mid close-up that's uh you know for anyone who's seen that movie you recognize that image right away because it's burned into your soul forever (laughs) as a pure as what pure joy looks like uh finally yeah no in that uh that sequence that's where uh when we're back in her in the throne of blood sequence that's where we meet the old witch who curses her to love forever it's not like live forever it's not to you know die tragically or to have lost but just to love for a thousand years so millennia and that's what she's been cursed to do and she's been tricked into doing it because her she thinks her husband is dead but her husband really isn't there. He's been captured. So once again, she has chosen to <laughs> to drink the tea and accept this chase as opposed to accepting that her husband's dead. So, you know, he could, you know, right there and then she could have accepted that he is dead 
and ended things, but by choosing not to and to continue to forget and to move forward, she is uh, choosing to continue this chase, which is, it's absolutely beautiful because it's this idea that instead of love being an achievement, something that is fulfilling because you have it, it's more of an aspiration, a goal that it should never be attainable because the concept of love should be this idea that the chase is is the most exciting and fun part so love as an aspiration is is a big theme in this movie because of uh because of what she uh, who her character is and what she uh finds exciting in life and the 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 witch says uh i think two maybe three points um you know i i hate you more than i can bear and i love you more than i can bear yeah that's such a <laughs> it's such a that's a it's, a, it's like oh that's the weirdest curse like that idea that you know and is you know is the witch herself like that's yeah. almost kind of like part of what ends up happening later because she remembers she doesn't remember she remembers each one of her three lines throughout the movie like there's a moment where she looks in a in a window and sees the reflection of the witch and she's saying um, I curse you to love for a thousand years. And then later she has the, I hate you more than I can bear. And then later I love you more than I can bear. So each one of those memories, each one of the times the witch comes back to her, the three times, once again, it's in threes. She remembers a different line that the witch says and it, it affects, you know, it, ha- it has resonance to what's going on in that moment in her life to help her either move forward or to accept something. The sequence um, when she goes into the jail door and then all of a sudden she's in a bombing during World War mm-hmm. II is another one of those moments where it's very difficult to tell kind of where we are and whether this is part of her real life or part of her movie career. It certainly seems like you know this is the shop that she was supposed to run that gets bombed. But there, there's also almost like a sense, I don't know if we've seen the sort of lizard, Godzilla-like lizard creature at this point in the movie, but it had a vibe of like, at first of like a monster attack, um, which of course like yes. was, you know, lined up with, uh, which, which was the intention of the original Gojira film in the first place. But I think still like there, there is this sense of like, is this World War II? Is this you know, a movie. And that's, and that's what Kyoji's line is. Is this science fiction? Yeah. Like he, he has, because he is so, he's so young and he has no reference to kind of like the hardships of what World War II meant for a lot of Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, his line. And then, you know, you just, Genya just like backhands him, I think just kind of like, come on, dude. Yeah. And that is, that's a moment where you don't know really what, what we're seeing. Like, is this another film she's in or is this, uh, real life because this is the moment where she also goes to the sweet shop and the only thing remaining is this picture right. of her in her youth drawn on this wall which then you say well was that real or is that a part of the movie because is this the ending of the train movie like this this moment of you know her her going back to you know her youth and seeing this because that's the other thing like all the storylines throughout all these movies we're watching it's the same story just told in different periods and different ways. So it's a one long continuous story of the same story. So it's hard to kind of place it. And then when she has the actual, uh, 
image framed at home uh, that she shows, you know, in, in, in the reality, you can easily go, oh, okay, so that was real. But then there's me, who's a filmmaker, saying, oh, she got to keep the prop from the movie. <laughs> you know, there's this sense of, uh, you know, there's so many times where actors, there's something that they really, uh, you know, uh, link themselves to that film and they want to keep yeah. that memory. And so, you know, you know, not everyone's Viggo Mortensen and keeps his horse from uh, the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> but she got to keep this painting, you know, uh, which probably meant a lot to her at the time because it was her first her first film or, you know, maybe it wasn't at that point. Maybe it was her third or fourth film because we've we've uh, moved so far in time in this. We don't have a, a sense of like where we are in this uh, bombing sequence. But, you know, that's where she she has another moment where we come after that sequence. We are now back in their home and we have another moment where she restarts her story and we go back into that concept of the pictures again because now we're talking about post-war Japan. right and this is where she so fought this is where she change. faints right she faints in she yes. faints in the movie or the memory and then she faints in real life yes and yeah he wakes he you know she's woken up and then she kind of begins again because i think the i think the line is oh we can come back to this later and she's like oh no if i stop now i'll never be able to start yeah. again so let's just we have to keep we have to keep moving through this as you know as fast and furious as possible. There's a there's a great another transition here where mod, modern present day Chioko is looking to the left. She turns to look to the right as the camera rotates around her and then pans over the horizon and lands on sort of mi- mi- middle-aged Chiyoko that we're meeting for the first time oh. with the director standing on the balcony. It's all one shot. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Again, it's just, it's one of those things that conceptually you couldn't figure out why it wouldn't work in live action. And yet it would require an incredible amount of sophistication to meld those two shots together if you tried to do them in real life. It's just clever and 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 but not distracting. None of this is ever look what I can do, right. which is always like the biggest sin of most films. You know, if there's ever a moment where it's like look what I can do, as opposed to look at the way I I move this story forward or I support this this visual style within this film. That's you know those are the only times where those those moments really work for me. I think that's the thing that always blows my mind about Cone. That that I think it's the thing that that really makes him one of the greats from our lifetimes is that his movies are so meta and they're so kind of self-reflexive and think and constantly, you know, sort of reminding you of watching a movie of the experience of interacting with art, always commenting on those things and yet it never feels flashy or smug or kind of I've never gotten the sense of a wink from Cone. Do you know what I mean? Oh, com- yeah, no, completely. Even even later when we get into like Pap- Paprika where the, his own films appear within that movie, that ne- that doesn't feel like a moment of look at how cool yeah, I am. Yeah, like a jokey. It, 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 yeah, it works within. There is a there is a sense of humbleness into what they're approaching, 
Like if you if you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff, you know, having them the way they're describing things, they're they're so they feel honored to be a part of something so amazing and to contribute to something greater than themselves. And because of that, that sense of like duty and the sense of art for art's sake really comes through in the filmmaking the way that they're the way that they're going about how they're doing things it never feels like it's like you know young the young stud check out what i can do i'm going to flip this camera upside down and move through this car and out the exhaust and totally yeah you know you're like there's none of that sense this all it all works towards the story and it's all done in such a way masterful way that it doesn't feel showy it feels it feels natural which is weird because these things that are happening are not natural at all in the film but it feels natural to the the story that they're telling yeah i think that's the key that it's so tied into the themes and story of the movie that any self-reflexive components just don't register as outside of this already outside object you know that that there's there's no sense like i mean i think the first real like self-reflexive stuff that most people of our generation and earlier were exposed to was like looney tunes cartoons you know like that i mean bugs bunny is the classic example of like the his whole shtick is that he knows that he's in a cartoon and so he can do he he's basically like neo from the matrix like he's he realizes (laughs) he's in a cartoon and so he's able to manipulate everything in order to get whatever it is that that he wants and uh you know i love him for it and i love those jokes in in a looney tunes cartoon you know where where bugs and yosemite sam sit down and they're watching the movie the cartoon that they're in you know um oh yeah um, but like that is not it it's in service of a joke it's not in service of what those cartoons were about and i think that in a lot of ways like stuff like that and stuff like that totally happened obviously something like sherlock jr what has been around forever so it's not it, it didn't start with looney tunes but i think that's where like kids are first exposed to it and i think a lot of people the lesson that they take from that is that this is best used in service of humor and of the knowing wink to people and to kind of remind them that you're smarter than the movie and that the people who made the movie are smarter than the movie. Like there's a little bit of that where it's like, this is just a cartoon guys. We don't need to take it that seriously. And yeah, Cone is is not about that at all. Yeah, no, he's saying take this seriously, and he's not. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, any time that you have a character directly uh, directly addressing the fourth, breaking the fourth wall and addressing the audience, it's always in that sense of smugness. I was thinking recently. I watched uh, Orlando. I watched Orlando, and our character, our uh, our character in the film, is constantly addressing the audience. Um, and it is in that sly, smug, uh, you know, we know better, these people are stupid, and, and you know, we're going to kind of work this through. I always think of uh, Zach Morris and Saved by the Bell and his uh, freezing time and turning to the audience and explaining, like trying to explain why he's about to be a total douchebag and do something wrong so he can kind of get you on his side. 
and there's there's none of that like that's that's what we're familiar with yeah. so when this when this movie starts doing those types of moments and it's not played for laughs and it's not played for those you know those concepts that we're used to i think that's why i was so blown away by it because it's 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 a language that i was familiar with but used in a completely different context and it it works so well that you wonder why it hasn't been done in a feature film before where a character is not the you know is just relating and it's it's hard you know without it being voiceover or narration or uh, diary entries you know this you know or even being misleading like that's the other thing this isn't doing it's not intentionally being an unreliable narrator yeah. uh, we, we're accepting the, the the method in which she is going to relate her history to us you know that's yeah, she the fact that she almost asks asks us our permission to share her story this way makes us complicit in the way that this story is unfolding yeah I wonder if that's what really sets this apart from Perfect Blue for me. You know, there is like this feeling of, I guess I'll say, like feeling of consent with this movie that like mm. we are we're we are on this journey with her, and maybe that's why. I mean, part it's hard because I think Perfect Blue is just the kind of movie that um, it's it, you know it's 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 a shock film for some people yeah. for for kind of in, in my opinion like the wrong type of movie watcher where um you know they're more likely to kind of find you know Lars von Trier appe- appealing because of his outrage as opposed to any sort of sophisticated themes that he uh, occasionally works with <laughs> I'll say um <laughs> but I you know I think like you see so much more dialogue on the internet about like what's perfect blue about what does it mean what is the like let's break this down like let's figure out what exactly is going on here and you see very little of that with millennium actress uh at least i i have when i've looked around no, I haven't, and no you're absolutely right there's no there's no what is this mystery yeah but they're equally as confusing solve. and mysterious you know and, and and intentionally obscure what is reality and what is fiction but because there is this feeling of like, I think there's just a recognition that like we are on this journey with her and that this movie is about that journey, to, you know, literally when she says like, you know, it's, it's more about the chase for me, she's telling yeah. us like, don't, don't let this get, you know, don't let this get in your head. Like this is about the experience of watching this movie, not about trying to figure out what it's, what it's about, what the key yeah. is. Well, that's the thing. Like uh, Perfect Blue, it's like the, the the means in which the story is being told is to obscure things, to make things more mysterious. Where the same setting for this movie is to contextualize her life story, like the the methods yeah. in which it's being right. used is to contextualize what's going on in 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 her only way as an artist to be able to describe. Well, here's all my emotions, and here's all the things that has happened to me best suited in these characters i've played here let me you know we we, if we were to make a it would be like making a movie about a painter in which we just look at his paintings or their paintings to figure out about their life story is you know it's the same way for this actress like let's look at my movies to help really kind of get into how because when she has because when uh really get into how uh she has developed and grown as an actress 
because if you look back at the moment where she's in her first scene, uh, she meets uh, Aiko, who is an older actress that uh, we've touched upon a little bit. But she kind she's kind of the foil in this film. If there is a villain in this movie, Aiko is kind of that character because she's a an older actress who doesn't like this young yeah. upstart, and she's constantly cast opposite her to be the meaner character in the film and so she kind of follows into that role in her real life relationship with uh choco as well but uh that first scene where they're acting opposite each other she doesn't do a very good she doesn't deliver a very good performance and everyone's kind of like oh here we go we we got this nobody to come in and act and she's not bringing it and then it's at that moment where she invests her life story into the film in which she then elevates her performance to a surprising degree that everyone ha- is now uh enraptured by her performance and that's so that makes perfect sense that throughout the rest of the film it, it, we can tell her life story through these films she made because she's injecting all of her personal feelings and emotions and her story into these characters. So why not just use these characters as the story device? Because that's basically what it is. She didn't live, you know, everything that she's ever lived has been injected into all of her roles. It reminds me of the line in um, The Red Shoes when I think it's the producer asks her, uh, why do you want to dance? And she says, why do you want to live? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there is like quite often when it comes to performers, a, you know, there's a, a normal person under there who's not a, um, not a legend, not a hero, but they just have this insatiable drive to create. And you know, it makes the rest of their life not that interesting because that's yeah, all they exactly. do their whole life. And, you know, I think there's value in, in well-rounded people just as much as in um, obsessive, uh, solo, talented people. There is something to be said for kind of working through who a person is if they're if that's what they poured their entire life into. Yeah. Well, it's like when uh, anyone ever interviews David Lynch, he says, uh, why do I want to talk about that? I made that. Yeah. Go watch the movie. That's what I feel about this right now. So why do I need to talk more about it? It's the same thing. Like, why do I need to discuss my life? Here, let's go through my movies. And this is my life. This is what was going on and why it relates to everything. Yeah. He's so is, he's such a good example of that because he's like the most boring, normal person when he talks like in the oh, art yeah. life. It's like, he's like making Eraserhead one of the weirdest movies ever, like debut features ever. And it's like all about, he's like, you know, it was hard. Like I was living with my family and just trying to put food on the table. And, uh, you know, I wanted a picket fence and it's, it's just like. <laughs> yeah, that, that Midwestern yeah, totally comes oozing out of yeah. everything when he's not a. When he's not behind the camera. Yeah. So some of the things that I also enjoyed in this film was some of the rule breaking that Chioko does throughout the whole course of the picture. She's not only is she constantly like there's this idea that she's, oh, she's chasing after a man. The whole story is about her wanting to chase after a man. But if you look at if you look at it instead of what she's running to, but what she's running from. Um, it's a constant running away from traditional female roles. 
So, you know, the first thing she's she's told, you know, uh, no, you can't become an actress. You're going to take over the family store and get married and have kids because that's that's what you're supposed to do. And then next thing you know, she's running, running away on a train to get away from that whole situation. And then throughout the whole movie, she's constantly running away from those things, running away from being a princess, running away from being a teacher, running away from being a nurse, running away uh, from uh, working in a brothel on movie sets, running, you know, running away from her mother and that mother figure again, uh, you know, to the point where she... You know, she's run away from all these traditional roles, all these traditional, uh, you know, rules and societal norms that women are supposed to be a part of. Uh, you know, she doesn't have kids. She never has any kids in this movie. She doesn't never falls into that kind of idea of what a what a woman's value is, is through marriage and children to the point where she runs away from the planet. You know, she gets on a spaceship to get out of here. She's like, all right, listen, I've already run away from everything here, and you guys are still trying to box me in, so I'm just going to jump on this spaceship, and we're just going to go explore the universe because, uh, you know... My, she actually literally my, my, runs my... runs away from the planet because she's... Oh, yeah. Sure, her, they, we, it's a shot of her legs, and then the steam comes over her legs, and all of a sudden she's on the moon as she's running. Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, it's and it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Like, just this idea that she's... You know, I don't, I'd never want to be pigeonholed into any sort of anything. I just want to pursue my passion and that's it. Like, and it's, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. And that moment where she's on the moon, just having that big, uh, you know, they keep on referring to Cone's films as this French term, uh, trombliol, which is like this painting term in which you don't know if the painting is real or not. So like people would paint, you know, paint a picture of a window on a wall, you know, hang a picture of a window on a wall that has a scene outside. So it's this concept of what is real and what is fake and these stages of, you know, seeing the frame within the picture. And so when you have that shot of her on the moon finally getting to the painter's painting of this snow scene and the way that the image is framed is that the the mountains of the moon blend mm-hmm. into the 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 snow mounds in the painting itself and how it's like a part of the scenery and you know and whole and complete and it's almost like she's finally getting to the point where um she's reaching the end of this journey and she you know she's had to go to the moon to you know which is the thing that he loves this imperfect moon uh you know that's where she needs to travel to to be able to reconnect with him mm-hmm. um and it's not even him it's just reconnecting with his art at that moment and when she approaches the art um he appears inside the painting now it's almost like he no longer exists in reality he is only yeah. this this idea of art or this idea of a painter and that uh you know that she has to you know try to reach in and that's when the uh I think that's when the last earthquake happens, right? That's when the the one that kind of shakes her out of that scene. Yes, yeah. I'm trying to remember how that as uh, the that paint the painting yeah. comes alive. Does he appear and then disappear, or is he there and then he disappears? Yeah, he disappears yeah. and she just he disappears and she says, "You know, wait." Yeah. And then uh, the earthquake happens, and it's a reveal. Of the, it's a set. The set. It's on the set that the earthquake is happening. Yeah. And one one other uh, thing 
I wanted to add to your point about her kind of running away from these uh, traditional female roles is that the one time where she doesn't do that is when she gets married and after she loses the key. So she gets married yes. and then she's doing uh, house chores and that's how she discovers the key again. And that leads to her running away from, from the marriage. Well, yeah. And it's, it's so funny too, because uh, she's doing these house chores, doing the most menial mundane tasks of vacuuming uh, while on the TV the first uh, the first space space shuttle right, launch right, is happening yeah. you know so uh, reality is is greater than fiction at this one moment in time and then yeah this is the this is the moment this is the only part of the film which i can almost definitely say is reality and not part of any of her films because she finds that key but then <laughs> well see I say that, yeah. And then, like she's confront, she's confronting her director husband, and then she runs off a set, right? And she yeah. runs off the set because Iko Iko shows up, and now we turn, and this 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 apartment is on a set somewhere. So you know, you're like, oh god damn it, why are you do this? Like, I would, I think this is what's reality. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's a uh, you know, it's so, and that's where Iko finally kind of says like her right. whole, says her piece of you know this whole the, everything has been set up by me. Uh, that that fortune teller has lied to you. I'm the reason who you know you came to Manchuria and chasing the key, and he's always known about it. And so she realizes that she's been uh, deceived uh, by the people that she surrounded herself, which causes her to once once again, uh, you know, go on the run to find the next the next thing. There's a lot of fades in the final sequence where. Uh, we're going from older to younger, younger to older. Genya fades uh, from younger to older, I think. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like in these final moments, like the young, the all the sequence, all the scenes are merging together, like all of the settings, and they're kind of you know becoming this one, one piece. So, you know, we're almost like entering the fourth dimension in a lot of ways. Yeah, this, this giant grand chase that we just watch her chase throughout all of time. Like, if it hasn't been... Which which is the rewinded scene right. from the beginning. And we're getting all, again, like, all different types of travel, all different moments from the past, from the future, from present. Anim- animation yeah. styles, uh, time periods throughout Japan. It really puts a cap on exactly what, you know... It, it, it's the mirror like if this movie is a mirror uh you know we're now we're now reflecting back the beginning on itself yeah. as we go through her life once more again but it's also this idea almost of your life flashing before your eyes because we we've realized that chioko's in real life is dying and you know that happens as she races and races and races we end with another earthquake and we cut out of reality to see that you know her house is shaking uh now that she's reached the end of all of her memories the the idle home that she's built to be stagnant in and now that she has her key and it's time to move forward again you know everything gets upended in her uh in her world again and Genya, for the third time, uh, saves her by putting his body underneath a rubble and wreckage falling falling down on her. 
the first time he does this is as a as a samurai kind of hero in the uh, Throne of Blood style uh, scene that she's in. He jumps and stops from burning wreckage from falling on her. And then we see in a flashback that when an earthquake happened on the on her last day of filming on the space movie, uh, he jumps and stops uh, you know the ceiling from collapsing on her by blocking her. And then in this third time, as her uh, as the wooden structure that is hanging above her table, which I think is for uh, tea ceremony type uh, stuff, uh, he jumps once again to shield her, and uh, you know once again. The rule of threes in this movie is happening, you know, yeah. in that in that scene as well. We didn't even mention the other rubble in the film, which is the studio that she worked for being torn down, which is kind of the impetus for him making this documentary oh, yeah. and interviewing her and therefore, in a way, saving her from the rubble of the studio being destroyed as well by allowing her to tell this story of her life and kind of bring peace to her career in a way that was you know cut short initially yeah there's a lot of uh like decay of the past that happens throughout the film you know the rubble yeah. of the studio and then we have the rubble of post-war post-bombing um all, all of their lives have completely been upended as everything's been leveled and destroyed and then we rebuild to only have you know the studio be destroyed again kind of like at the end of the film when basically it's almost uh inferred that uh without her presence there there's no need that studio isn't as successful anymore so her story is the only reason why that was staying alive the the other the last uh weird movie comparison i have here uh is citizen kane I don't know if you like got any of that vibe. Obviously it's only like one person. It's the it's the the person telling the life story their own life story as opposed to mm, okay, yeah. a series of people telling one person's life story. The wreckage of the studio match with the the wreckage uh, of Charles Foster Kane's mansion. And then there is a bit of the I think there is a bit of the sled in the key. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I can recapturing see that. youth and something that, you know, brought her this, this great joy and sort of set her off on this path. In the first, in the first time that uh, we referenced this key is in snow, yeah. which is the same yeah. as the rosebud. Yeah. Oh, that's, I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's a, that's a fantastic comparison. Well, and I think, you know, obviously like we're, we're looking at flashbacks of, of these moments that, and, and specifically memories, people telling the memories. Um, and even though the, the interviewer doesn't show up in the memories in Citizen Kane, he's always positioned in that sort of lower right-hand corner looking out you know Mm -hmm. sitting in the place of the audience um there there's certainly a self-reflexive quality to citizen kane and that the 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 love of movies is shared too i mean the the way that that wells used almost everything every type of film uh, in that film you know that newsreels uh even all the way down to shadow puppets um is i think reflected here in in the use of different types of animation different types of frozen images moving images 
uh, melding images, uh, that component of it too, uh, is something that I yeah, think really also, uh, those two films share. Yeah, telling an animation style history yeah, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I. That's uh, that's great. I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it that way, and that's a, that's a really that's a really cool observation. I'll have to watch it a fourth time, <laughs> uh, thinking about it in those terms because that's super cool. So I I, um, I was. Uh, it's so excited to get into talking about the movie and I gushed about it at the beginning, but I didn't actually get kind of what your, you know, sort of gut reaction oh, this, was this, to uh, watching this. movie's fantastic. It was a joy. Like it was, you know, it has a very short running time. I think it's only yeah. like 93 minutes long. So, but you know, it like, like the locomotion of our lead character, this movie goes and doesn't like, it doesn't stop. Like, there isn't a moment where I'm kind of like wanting to look at my phone. It it's the storytelling, the story itself, the the methodology in which he's using to uh, move through time. The uh, you know the quote unquote camera work that's being done throughout the throughout this animation. It's it's phenomenal, and I was blown away by it. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to expect when I saw this. This was one of the ones I hadn't seen uh, until I, we did this podcast mm-hmm. or we, you know, we watched it. I watched it, uh, you know, before, before we settled in on doing this, uh, this, this season, Yeah, I had watched it, you know, when the Blu-ray came out. Um, but it, this was the, you know, this was a new thing to me, so watching it again that's why i think i watched it three three times for the podcast and one time i had just watched it on my own and uh it was so so enjoyable definitely ranks up ranks in my like top five animated films of all times Mm. and and really works in there in my like you know top 50 uh films of all times because it's just the way that it's such a sure-handed confident uh without being uh, without being, you know, a braggart, um, in way in the way that this film is being uh, told, that it does nothing but bring a smile to my face throughout the whole the whole entirety of the film. Uh, watching her experience joy makes me joyful. Watching the characters of the Genya and Kyoji uh, participate in her mm. life uh, it makes me happy. There isn't a moment where I'm not. I'm not thrilled. And then when the ending comes, I'm like, you know, I'm in tears because it is such a, it is such a beautiful poignant moment of her continuing, you know, this concept into, into whatever the next world is and beyond this, uh, you know, continuing that chase, continuing that thrill, that passion. And, you know, just, you know, I love movies. And so a movie about movies, about movies, about (laughs) history of movies, uh, gets me going as well. You know, it's great. Yeah, I really did enjoy it very much. Yeah, I I find it to be a a really life affirming uh, movie, especially as a as a movie nerd. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but I think you know, yeah, I think it's nice that it works on both levels. That there's a sense of like, you know, this is why we watch movies, but this is also like why people live lives and have full experiences and I, I i'm not sure that i think probably the only other animated movie that comes close to that for me is uh only yesterday 
I'm a complete wreck at the end of that movie, but in a in a good way. And I think this movie is similar in the sense of like you there there is a melancholy to it, but you also have this feeling of uh, invigoration about the potential to like take a chance in your life and to make the choices that are scary, but that you that you feel very strongly about, you know, strongly enough to take that, that risk. That's a powerful feeling. And, and I think both of those movies also really capture the sort of innocence of that, like the very basic childlike wonder of any moment that you take a chance in your life of like, uh, this is not what I'm willing to settle for because it's not what I would have settled for when I first started out on this journey. And so I'm not going to say I'm there and I'm not going to keep going. Like I'm, I'm, I need to continue to find that, that thing. Even if I didn't know specifically what it was when I was a kid, I know what it felt, what it needed to feel like. And I'm not there yet. I think that that's really a, a powerful emotion to uh, convey in a movie and uh, I think this movie does that I think you're right and it does it without without activating your more baser uh, nostalgia yeah. uh, ideas you know it doesn't it doesn't uh, exploit nostalgia to be able to get you to feel that idea of youthful youthful exuberance and ideals it it gives you those ideals and exuberance uh, through the character without it being something that is, uh, you know, nostalgia based, like a, like a Toy Story or a, you know, you know, things that are making you fond and remember for your for your own personal property, your uh, your Mononoa. Yeah, or a, that's true. Uh, yeah, you know, I actually just idea. recently watched Toy Story three, again, um, and I do love that movie, but yeah, it doesn't, it's it it doesn't measure up in terms of the sophistication of of the feeling that that's generated here no no not at all yeah there's a yeah it's a and there's so many like within the within the film there's so many fantastic arcs like she goes through she goes through a, a character arc throughout the entirety of the film and then within each almost within each film she goes through a small arc as well uh, that helps her progress forward into the next chapter of her life, which I, you know, once again, that's another fantastic story element. And as she progresses forward in life, you realize through some of the visual uh, echoes that the character in which she is pursuing is not important anymore. This idea that, uh, so I, was, I said earlier about her being knocked down. The first time she meets this artist character, she, uh, he knocks her down in the street by accident, bumps into her because he's on the run from the law. So uh, she kind of hides him away and they have their conversation. Then the next time she's knocked down is within a movie in which uh, uh, she was running away and there's a young samurai who is escaping from the law. And it's funny because it's the same it's the same exact interaction she has with the artists from her youth, but we see the actor's face because now this is within a movie because we're in such a mm-hmm. distinct time period. But then it happens a third time, uh, much later in her life, 
and she's knocked down, and it's by a gentleman of no significance. There's no conversation that happens after. There's no... Is this when she's running away from the guy with the scar? Yes. Yeah. At the at, like Towards the end, she's just bumped over by someone. Yeah. And so you see throughout the progression that this this echo is happening again and again and again. First time, it's the start of her journey. The second time, it's almost a fulfillment where she's finally falling in love with this handsome character who uh, gives, you know, gives her, reciprocates this love with reaching through the, the bars to touch her hand. And then the last time, it's like, once again, bumped over by this character and the person, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not a part of that. It's It's no longer this 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 ideal it's uh is is reality of uh, it's it's not the meat cute anymore it's it's the idea of picking yourself up and moving forward is the is the joy that she's having from this because each time she picks herself up and continues on in in her adventure so you know there's all there's lots of that the, the guy with the scar meeting him for a third time in which she finally uh, comes to apologize yeah. and to deliver truth to her by giving her a, a letter but he never delivers the truth to her because she runs off before yeah. he can and he delivers it to uh genya who you know i we might have touched upon this but he's you know he is a character who in his youth worked for that studio and became a huge fan of hers and was excited to be a part of the creation of those movies that uh, she was in these historical and you know financially successful films that he was a he was a part of making you know deep behind the scenes which you know makes me feel good because that's <laughs> like my role on films like you know see we're all you know we're all making this happen it feels good I'm not an actor I'm not the director but I have a career in movies and I'm happy and so you can be Genya you can be happy and it isn't until late in life where he's finally taken on the role of of kind of the same idea like i'm pursuing my passion and i'm starting my own company yeah. called lotus which references her and her her favorite flower and his passion is wanting to tell this woman's story and it's you know it's that same idea he's inspired by her to continue forward and it's the key that allows him to get in to be able to tell this story and unlock her past so the key is not only important to her it's important to him because it's the it's the way in which he can unlock her memories to be able to tell her story. So it's such it's such a beautiful like nothing is wasted in this film. Yeah. There's no there's no scene that's throwaway or you know, which is funny because, you know, as Cohn has said in the past, like, you know, this isn't like movie where we film a bunch of stuff and then in post we figure out what works, what doesn't, so we mm -hmm. exit. Like all this is figured out before we animate a frame. Right. So there is no excess. There is no cut scenes because it's all in there. Yeah, I hadn't made this connection before, but comparing this to a movie like Double Life of Veronique where he had a script, he had a concept for what he wanted to do, but he just shot a bunch of stuff and cut a lot of it out and cut whole storylines out and rearranged things. I mean, you'd never cut 20 minutes of a storyline out of an animated movie, a finished animated movie anyway. So yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's a totally different uh, experience. To, to, despite the fact that both of them are incredibly complex in terms of their construction. Oh yeah, completely. Like it's a uh, it's that uh, it's that concept of that, uh, that Hitchcock line. You know, making movies is boring because I've already made the movie in my head. Like Cone and his animation team, 
they've had to make that whole entire movie before they even start to animate because otherwise, you know, there is no happy accidents. There is no finding something new on set. They're making the sets. <laughs> They're making everything, every single thing inside that frame. So everything is thought out well in advance and way before that they actually start the animation process. And it's such a, it's such a fascinating uh, format for storytelling because it, it elevates all, you know, it's, it's when you see a movie like this that you can now start seeing uh, sloppy animation. Things that are, you know, uh, let's put the character in a, in a void so we, you know, background or just blur everything out so we don't have to think about the background because we need to get this done. You know, the, you know things like that where, where the world of the characters aren't fully formed within the backgrounds because the backgrounds are animated by or you know drawn by someone else yeah based on a few notes and not you know from the actual you know cone was known for just sitting there and uh and stressing over just every single small detail in someone's apartment or someone's room and he he said you know one of the hardest things but one of the most rewarding things was doing the research to discover all these periods in japanese history because you can't just reference a photo from, you know, the uh, Edo period. There, you know, it wasn't something possible. So, how did something look in that time? You know, what, you know, how would it work? And so they, they were visiting like uh, film sets and going through the prop rooms and dressing up in all these like, you know, samurai outfits and and period clothing to kind of get an idea and a sense of the research it took to be able to. Uh, to visualize this story and uh, you know it's it, it shows all the all the hard work is is up on that screen yeah well do you have any final comments before we uh, b- uh blast off into the uh the next life <laughs> in this series i'm finding it so hard to put into words because these films are so much more about feeling than they are about you know contextualizing them with 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 speech it's so it's such a strange it's such a strange things for me because i'm used to be able to dissect and analyze and then say you know say what i'm thinking about these themes and and i think i've i've you know i've fared well in this series so far but these movies are affecting me in such a feeling way that i'm having a hard time expressing them in in a in a manner that is appealing that is appeasing to me that i'm like i'm like this is how i'm feeling about this and now i've gotten it out because every time i try i find myself either going deeper or further or bumbling because i'm just like i can't put into words how these films are affecting me in terms of their technique and their style uh the mechanics behind how they're being made and even how the voice actors are are, are so compelling the fact that you know three different actresses are playing uh choco throughout time period so it's not just one person trying to affect an older person's voice you know there's an older person with experience and history approaching this from an older perspective and then a younger actress playing the younger character approaching it from that idealized you know it just all those ideas are so are are, are so amazing and and i think the thing that i I will say is is relating a story from one of the uh, behind the scenes is that uh, when they were finishing the voice work, which in Japanese 
or in this film, I guess. I don't know if it's true for all Japanese animation, but all the actors are in a room together, working together, as opposed to American style, which is a lot of times like an actor comes in, reads their lines, and then they put everything together in post, and they're never in the same room with the other voice actors. They're all together, like, and they were, they were live live reading as they're watching the finished animation up on the screen so there was this energy and and uniqueness to the making of this movie as well and usually at some point you know uh, actors will have left because they're no longer in and most of the actors especially the three uh the two other actresses who played chioko stayed to watch the final scene being read through and uh, acted out because there was such an emotional investment in that character for them that they they had to be a part of that magic of that moment at the end and i think that that is the thing that brings me close to this is that i'm as invested as genya in this character's life story and i'm as invested as kyoji becomes as I learn more and more about this character and more and more about Japanese history and Japanese film and this director, Satoshi Kon, as I learn more and more about this, the more and more I'm, I, I'm enamored by it and I'm, I'm just whisked away into this director's uh, works. And Well, I mean, yeah, they, they wouldn't be movies if, uh, if we could perfectly describe them. They would be podcasts. There so. you go. There you go. Well, uh, we're we're going to do another one of these. Um, we actually have three more uh, to do on on Satoshi Kon, and the next one is uh, a remake of a Hollywood classic, you could say, <laughs> uh, Tokyo Godfathers. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, based on John Ford's Three Godfathers, which itself was a remake of a previous movie, which was a. Um, which was based on a, I think it was a short story, but it's very different from those uh, those movies. Not just they moved it from the the Wild West to Tokyo. It's it's got its own Satoshi Kon charms uh, oh, as well. So charming, and it's not to be confused with Three Men and a Baby, which is also a remake <laughs> of that. But uh... that's true, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, do you have anything you want to wrap up or say? Um. Setsuko Hara, call me. And with that, we're complete for another week.